1: Welcome to the Mutual Audio Network.
2: The following audio drama is rated PG 13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. This is Michael Emerson from Lost, and you're listening to The Leviathan Chronicles.
3: The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far: the connection between Leviathan and Mount Shenglong has been made. Whit Roberts of the Black Door Group, along with Miley and Oberlin Saint Clair, have made the long and dangerous trek through the Tibetan mountains to enter the cave where the Chinese first found a functioning Star Stone over a decade ago. Mount Sheng is revealed to be a giant communications facility for Leviathan to contact the planet Sorax. Assisted by four monstrous enforcers, the three of them penetrate deep within the bowels of the mountain to access a hidden chamber containing an enormous keyhole. Wit Roberts uses his briefcase, now recovered from Oberlin and Mai Lee, to activate the keyhole which opens a portal directly to Leviathan City. On the other side of the portal stands Bennu, Dr. Tang Sui and the two two Seraxian aliens who beg to be rescued. But deeper in Leviathan, McAllen and Tully find themselves adjusting to life among the immortal population, deep under the ocean. Tully has managed to find a ramshackle dive bar known as the Salty Squid, and McAllen continues to trail Evangeline, learning more about governance within the immortal city, and the heavy burden Evangeline carries with her. But not everyone has enjoyed the pleasures of Leviathan equally. Harlequin has been brutally tortured by Bennu, but has made a daring escape, and is currently a fugitive at large within Leviathan City. But back in Tibet, Sen and Nathaniel Pratt have survived an assassination attempt and are on the run. While in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, they discover a knapsack left behind by Mai Li. Within it, they find a mysterious map leading to Mount Shang And now, the season finale, Chapter 25 The Showdown at Mount Shenglung, Part 2.
4: We're running out of time, Senshin.
1: The plan will be here.
4: It will be getting cold soon.
1: I know.
3: Nathaniel Pratt shivered as he looked upwards to watch the fading sun descend behind the icy grey mountains of the Tibetan highlands. He and Sen Shun stood in a large desolate field with little protection from the bitter alpine winds that penetrated the valley from the north. High above them, surrounding the field, were peaks reaching over 25,000 feet that now cast long shadows over the frozen ground where the men stood. The only vegetation in the field was a large expanse of lichen that carpeted most of the ground not covered in a thin layer of snow. The field was devoid of any trees or large rocks, and given the events of the past few days, now left Nathaniel feeling distinctly exposed. I
4: don't understand. Why didn't we arrange for transport all the way to Tingri? The detour we took cost us several hours and has actually taken us further away from Mount
1: Shailong. I don't
4: understand. What does this plane have that we need so badly? Protection and access.
1: I still don't understand. <laughs> you soon will.
4: But Sension, how will Black door-
1: There!
3: From the distance, a black Gulfstream 650 emerged from between two distant peaks and made a bees line for Sension and Nathaniel's location. It was hard to see the black speck against the fading light of dusk, but Nathaniel was sure it was the same plane that had brought him to New York from Amsterdam. As it got closer, the plane tilted its wings to the side to get through the narrow ravine that led into the valley that held the frozen field. It pulled a tight loop a few hundred feet above the two men before sharply dropping its altitude to come in for a landing in the large clearing. Once it touched down, the jet taxied to within a few feet of the men and Nathaniel could see that it was a different pilot than the man that had flown him to upstate New York a week ago. This time, a woman, dressed in an elegant sari, with an earpiece and aviator sunglasses, was piloting the plane. Come on. Senshin and Nathaniel quickly boarded the plane as it came to a stop before them. As they boarded, Sension walked Nathaniel back through the plush cabin, adorned with Connolly leather and burl walnut trim. The female pilot was standing in the aft, ready to greet them. Hello, Sension. Hello,
1: Anjali.
5: Who is the boy? His
1: name is Nathaniel, and he's one of us.
3: Anjali stared at Nathaniel
5: warily, and then turned her attention back to Sension. This mission is dangerous, Sension. You should have far more backup than just this boy. We could have six specialists from Dra'vi here on the ground in less than four hours team of just two men won't be enough I can't to can't have stop.
1: a larger force, Anjali.
5: Can't or won't?
1: What exactly are you asking?
5: You're not responsible for everyone, Sentient. Soldiers are trained to fight. They're also trained to die.
1: Anjali, I've made my decision. I want wheels up in two minutes. Blackdoor knows we're in Tibet. I can't lead a larger force in. Not when we have no idea what we're facing.
5: All the more reason to bring a larger team that would have a wider skill set
1: I want them dead! This is our one chance, Anjali, to cut the head off the snake. Blackdoor is getting closer to us they know something. They got to Okora, they knew we were in Laza, and they may have gotten to Makau and Orsal. We are running out of places to hide Anjali. You're
5: still putting yourself in unnecessary risk. The local authorities in Mumbai are asking too many questions about our base operations. They had too many witnesses that saw those two monsters tear apart half of Taravi. We can't relocate the base in Mumbai until we get the local authorities to stop breathing down our necks. These times are desperate, Sentient. We need our leader.
1: I'm right here, Anjali.
5: We'll see for how long. The cargo has been loaded. Ask for your instructions. But this, this is irrelevant. The suits haven't even been fully tested.
1: Anjali? Yes, Sanchun. How are your two boys?
5: They are leaving in a week to begin university in America, thanks to you. They'll be attending Dartmouth and Colgate.
1: It gets very cold at Colgate. It's
5: very cold where you're going. Maybe you both should stay here. <sighs>
1: When you go back to Mumbai, tell your sons that they are lucky to have a mother as brave as you.
5: Live long enough and tell them yourself.
3: And Jali turned her back to Senshin and headed back to the cockpit to prepare for takeoff. The room is in the gold cabinet beside the seats. The rum. Senshin looked over to the side of the cabin to see an intricate gold inlay cabinet with ruby-encrusted handles beside one of the spacious cabin seats. He opened the cabinet door to reveal a bottle of Ron Zacapa Centenario 23-year-old rum resting in a chilled bucket of ice.
1: (laughs) Jolly is not pleased with the design of this mission.
3: Whatever gave you that idea?
1: because she brought the 23-year and not the XO. Here,
5: pull this.
3: Sension handed the cold bottle of rum to Nathaniel and thrust his hand deep inside the frigid bucket of ice. At the bottom of the bucket, Sension's hand met with a small rubber switch that he flipped to the right. The rear of the sumptuous cabin was covered with a single slab of polished walnut paneling. A split second later, the panel slid back to reveal a thick titanium door with a scratched and dated-looking keypad on the side.
4: A bit utilitarian for an executive jet.
1: We've made a few modifications for our needs in the rebellion. We make every effort to seem as conventional as possible in case we're ever seen or boarded. In order to do that, we have to use some very unconventional technology.
3: The two men walked through the titanium doorway and found themselves in a small, tight elevator. At the same time, the G650 began its takeoff and in moments was well on its way to a cruising altitude of 55,000 feet. The elevator dropped down a level to open into a small cargo hold in the belly of the jet. Towards the rear of the hold stood two gleaming silver crates that were over ten feet high. The surface of the crates was so lustrous that Nathaniel could actually see himself in its reflection.
4: What are in those silver crates? Is it the access or the protection? Protection. What kind of protection?
1: Assault armor. It's time to get ready for war.
4: A soul timer? What the hell?
1: Nathaniel, listen to me. Wherever we're going, it's someplace Black Door has been trying very hard to get to. We're not going to be able to just slap on some backpacks and go hiking up a well-marked trail to Mount Xianglong. Black Door will have this region wired. We'll know of our presence as soon as we get within a day's journey of the mountain. That's why we need another way in. Quieter way. This jet will help us with that. The excess. Exactly. The black coating on the outside isn't a mere fashion statement. It's actually a radar absorbent polymer coating. Those jet turbines on the wings, they're fake, for show. The real exhaust is actually generated from tiny vent ports all along the edge of the wing using a magnesium based fuel that reduces our heat signature. And don't even get me started on the weaponry. This plane is going to get us to Mount Shenglong quietly.
4: How? This plane needs a runway. There is no way it can land on the summit of Mount Shenglong. The map we found specified that Black Door's destination was at an altitude of over twenty-three
1: thousand feet. How would the plane we... isn't going to be landing, Nathaniel?
3: Nathaniel now stood silent. Come. Sension approached the glimmering silver crate and placed the palm of his hand on top of the colored touchscreen embedded in the front of the crate. After recognizing Sension's identity, entity the front face of the crate pushed forward and rose upwards hydraulically sliding back into the top of itself inside Tiny halogen lights brightly illuminated a menacing looking dark blue metallic suit that stood over seven feet tall. The body of the suit was covered in tiny interlaced links that resembled scales on a fish, giving the impression of both strength and flexibility. The helmet of the suit seemed to be oversized compared with the rest of the suit. Its giant tinted visor looked strangely aerodynamic and extended from the forehead down far enough to touch the top of the center chest plate. Behind the helmet was a small hump that came up to mid-neck, but the most striking feature was the aggressive armament. Rising from each shoulder pad was a high-speed 20mm carbine assault rifle perched on top of an articulating pivot stand. Each mini-cannon extended almost two feet diagonally from each shoulder, making the otherwise anthropomorphic shape seem vaguely insectoid. Oh
1: Behold the wonder of Project Vigil Assault Armor. Why is it called Vigil? I really couldn't say. I don't understand. You built it, didn't you? I assembled it, but I didn't design it. Well, who did? Evangeline. What? When I led the rebellion out of Leviathan, we grabbed several core memory files from the city's AI central server. Whatever we could grab. And it ended up taking us decades to unlock the files and bypass the security codes. But ultimately we did. The designs of the Vigil Assault Suit were one of the recovered files. Astounding! No, no, you're actually wrong. The really astounding part was the assembly plant. Uh, what? Also contained within the core memory files were schematics to build an entire assembly plant within Leviathan to manufacture thousands of these suits. Enough for an army.
4: Why would Evangeline want an
1: army?
3: Senshin stared at Nathaniel. Oh no!
1: Something very deadly is happening deep under the ocean, and we may be the only ones that can stop it, but first, we have to deal with Black Door. So, let's get you familiarized with the assault suits. Well, what do they do? The bottom line is that they protect you. The small hump you see rising over the rear neckline is the integrated deployment pack containing a stealth glider. Essentially, it's a very large paraglider constructed from a radar-absorbent fabric, similar to what's on the outside of this plane. We'll be deploying it over 70,000 feet. The suits will supply us with oxygen and maintain our body temperature. Air is almost non-existent at this altitude, and the negative pressure would literally boil your blood, so we'll be descending very quickly. Your battle armor contains a thick layer of compression fluid that's designed to absorb a heavy impact, like from landing. In our case, landing will probably mean initiating a manual disconnect from your chute, using this button on your chest plate here, when you get within 50 feet of the ground. The Himalayan winds at Xiangling will most likely be very strong and variable, so do not attempt to land your glider. Spot your landing, fly over it, and disconnect. Just keep it simple. What if we miss, Tenshin? Then the drop will be greater than 50 feet.
4: No, Ascension, no. This this is getting crazy. I can't
1: I mean, I'm not even trained. Nathaniel. No. Nathaniel, stop. I need you. I need you with me on this mission. I swear I won't let anything happen to you, but right now you just need to focus and listen to the things I'm telling you. I know you can do this. In fact, you're capable of so much more than you ever thought. I'm looking at a man who escaped from Leviathan City, who leapt through a keyhole with no idea where it would take him. God knows I've made some mistakes over the past few centuries, but there's one thing I'm not mistaken about, and that's your courage. We are going to do this, Nathaniel. We are going to complete this mission, and we are going to win. You will, Nathaniel. Do you trust me?
4: Yes. Yes, I trust you, Senshin.
1: Good. Good. I promise the suits are easy to control. The central control module on your wrist and chest plate operate the interface with your suit's computer. I've already shown you the button for the manual disconnect with your glider, but I want to show you the navigation features. I have the coordinates of Mount cheung programmed into both of our nav computers, so our suits will literally steer our paragliders to the target. In the event that your glider malfunctions in the air, the computer will automatically detect an increase in your vertical speed and deploy your reserve chute contained in your chest plate.
4: You mean if this chute doesn't open? Yes,
1: yes, that's exactly what I mean. Daniel, I promise you, you have nothing to worry about. Your helmet is equipped with night vision and infrared systems. It's also integrated with the carbon cannons mounted on your shoulder pads to aim automatically and fire at your command. All you need to do is look at the target, and the computer will follow your retinal movement to lock on. We have no idea what we could be facing when we get to Chung Could be a small black ops force, could be... Could be anything. Point is, we're just going to have to call an audible as we get closer to the target. Let's stay sharp, listen to my commands, and everything is going to be fine. Do you understand? I understand,
4: Sentient. But I have one question. What's that? What in heaven's name is an audible?
3: We're
5: approaching the drop zone section.
1: Understood. We're secure in cargo. Please open the hatch and jolly.
3: The belly of the G-650 shuddered and then lowered its loading ramp exposing the cargo bay to the jet stream that howled at 70,000 feet ferocious winds invaded the cabin instantly evacuating everything that wasn't tied down. A thick steel railing extended downwards, and Sension and Nathaniel used it to steady themselves as they slowly walked down to the edge of the ramp clad in the vigil assault suits. The ground below rose as high as 25,000 feet above sea level, but the distance from ground to plane still seemed impossibly high. Far from being cumbersome, Nathaniel was amazed at how light the armor felt, despite its hulking size.
1: Nathaniel, bring her- suits interface system online.
3: Nathaniel touched his metal-clad hand to a small touch screen on his left forearm. The screen was coded to only accept instructions from the unique electrostatic charge generated by his own gauntlets. In seconds, the inside of his helmet visor flashed brightly and then began to display diagnostic information on both his and sentient suits. An LED readout appeared that showed that the temperature within the cargo bay had now plunged to negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit.
4: Got it. All systems are nominated.
5: We have arrived at the drop zone. The window's open. Be careful, Senshin. I will. Thank you, Anjali.
1: Thank you for everything. I'll see you back in Mumbai. All right, Nathaniel, are you ready? I am, but I'm scared, Senshin. I'm scared too, friend. But Black Door is somewhere down there, hidden in the mountains. And as long as we're both immortal, they'll try to destroy us. And if they're close to apprehending McCown or Sul, then we have little time left. I understand. All right, then. Here we go, Nathaniel. Ready? Show.
3: The two of them leapt forward into the frigid Himalayan night, tumbling into the darkness. The pair shot downwards at over 250 miles per hour. Tiny wisps of cloud streaked past them, making the distant mountains beneath them disappear and reappear again. Nathaniel could hear the wind screaming past his helmet, but he could feel none of the cold powerful gusts rocked his body back and forth, and the Himalayan mountain range that had seemed so small and compact from 70,000 feet was now rapidly becoming enormous, threatening to swallow him whole. He looked up to see the G650 jet now become little more than a distant speck of shadow far above him. Max
1: gliders, now. Press the green button on your control module. It'll activate our target waypoint in the nav computer in your visor. The autopilot will engage automatically and guide
5: us towards Mount Shangwon. Got it. Distance to target 11,000 meters.
3: The interior of Nathaniel Pratt's visor was illuminated in eerie green light. He looked to his left and could see tiny servos pulling and extending the risers of his paraglider, thus maneuvering and steering his chute through three-dimensional guide markers displayed in his visor. The heads-up display listed Nathaniel's heading, altitude, ground speed and airspeed, rate of descent and outside temperature. But none of these technological feats could compare with what Nathaniel could see before him. Sparking in the crystal green light of his visor's night vision, Nathaniel could see the entire spine of the Himalayas laid out before him, bathing in the full moonlight. The night, while frigid and deadly, was now displaying a majesty unlike any Nathaniel had ever seen. Everything was silent, save for a small trace of the jet stream winds blowing past Nathaniel's helmet. The mountains looked soft and benevolent, coated in shimmering white snow punctuated by a sharp outcropping of dark rock. Not a soul or trace of civilization marred the pristine beauty laid out before them.
4: This is truly where the gods must reside.
3: Sentient's glider flew 300 feet ahead of him, and Nathaniel watched his left wingtip dip low, and then veer lazily to the left.
1: We're getting some crosswind from the north. Give the glider some right brake to compensate. Roger.
3: The two of them flew in silence for the next hour, gliding between the peaks of the towering mountains and over the deep crevices of the Himalayan ice fields. The gliders above them felt remarkably stable, yet only a little body lean from Nathaniel would cause his chute to drift left or right. After doing so, the nav computer would quickly correct by automatically tightening one of the steering lines to bring Nathaniel back on course with Mount Shenglong. It was amazing to be this high and have nothing, no plane, no cavern, nothing tying him down. Nathaniel felt at one with the night sky, and the gentle swaying of his glider reminded him of rolling over gentle waves on the sea. The earth looked so peaceful from this high up, and for an instant, Nathaniel forgot how there could be any conflict, any war or bloodshed between people when the world around them offered such generous bounty. But his thoughts were quickly dismissed by a blinking red arrow that appeared on Nathaniel's visor, pointing downwards.
5: Approaching target. Senshin,
1: what is this? We're here. We've reached the target zone. That's Mount Shenglong ahead of us.
3: Enormous.
4: I-, I don't see any place for us to put down except for a, a tiny rock ledge below the peak.
1: Yeah, I'm getting that. Activate your zoom. Do you see what I'm seeing?
4: Mm, it looks like the entrance to some sort of cave. There's not much of a path leading up to it, though. Are we really going to land directly on that outcropping?
1: We have to try. Not much of a landing zone anywhere else. The only way to nail that landing is to come in fast and hard. The assault armor we're wearing should absorb most of the- Attention,
4: I'm getting elevated radiation readings. There, by the cave. Yeah,
1: I- Nathaniel, switch to thermal
4: imaging.
3: What the? Out of the cave emerged two gargantuan figures that lit up the team's thermal imaging. Each figure was over ten feet high and almost as wide as they were tall. Their silhouette was roughly human in shape, but unnervingly wrong in proportion.
1: What the hell are those? Those are the Enforcers. Things. What the hell is an M4- Abominations. Utter fucking abominations that killed Othello back in Mumbai. Shit. You need to listen to me quickly Nathaniel. These things, these monsters, are dangerous. They'll kill us if we get too close. I don't want you to land anywhere near them, do you understand? You need to veer off in order Ascension. to- Ascension, I won't! We have Nathaniel, to- Nathaniel, do not engage the Enforcers. I shouldn't have brought you But you this.
4: did! You did bring me, and I'm here now. So let's talk about how exactly we're going to kill these damned things together. You don't understand. I understand that Black Door must be after something incredibly valuable to have creatures that scare even you guarding the entrance to that cave. We didn't come this far to turn away, Senshin. So I'll ask again, how
1: do we kill an Enforcer? Firepower. A massive amount of firepower, more than I suspect we have. What about the
4: cannons on our assault armor? What if we concentrate our firepower together? It's certainly worth a try, right?
1: You're right. Of course, you're right. But we're still 6,000 feet above the target. We can't engage them at this distance. We need to get in closer on final approach before we open fire.
3: The two sleek paragliders turned in unison, dipping their left wingtips downward, causing the gliders to initiate several slow 360s. As Senshin and Nathaniel bled off their altitude, their nav computers began to line up their final approach pattern towards Mount Shenglun.
5: Okay, Nathaniel.
1: Ready? Ready. Activate threat mode. On it. I've got weapons locked. need to use our element of surprise. There. On the left side of the entrance. That's the enforcer we'll head first. Ready? Engage target, now!
3: two enforcers that stood sentry outside the entrance to the cave were caught completely unaware. High-powered bullets rained down on them, blowing chunks of flesh off their shoulders and chests. The two enforcers turned simultaneously and screamed in fury at their assailants, but struggled to locate where exactly the shots originated. The impact of the bullets forced each enforcer back at least two steps, pinning them against the mountain, and yet no pain seemed to register on either face of the two beasts. Reload! Fire! But as their gliders drifted closer to the mountain, the air became far more turbulent. Oh, Senshin's paraglider pitched forwards and backwards violently as the venturi effect suddenly accelerated the winds between the narrow gaps in the mountain. He struggled to maintain altitude as he realized he could no longer control the stability of his glider. He quickly looked over his shoulder and could see Nathaniel's glider careening to the side of Mount Shenlong, causing him to rapidly lose altitude. Nathaniel, uh, I can't
1: control the glider, Senshin, I'm, I'm falling. Quickly, go Speed bar. Stabilize the, wings.
3: the first enforcer exploded out of the ground, leaping 40 feet in the air to grab Senshin's legs. The enormous weight of the monster brought Senshin and the enforcer crashing down on the narrow lip of the high ledge. The second enforcer raced over and, with one swing of his fist, threw Sension against the mountain hard, sending electricity surging through his body armor to compensate for the impact.
1: You're
3: off your glider. Do it now. The first Enforcer was on his feet again and launched his fist into Ascension's face. Ascension saw the blow coming and was able to strafe her left, allowing the punch to smash into the side of the mantle. Get out of here Shen Shen rolled left and sprang to his feet, coming dangerously close to the lip of the ledge. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see over the precipice and down the sheer face of Mount Lung. The ground was so far below that it was obscured in the thick cloud cover below them.
5: Weapons, weapons.
3: Computer, give me weapons systems. From his visor monitor embedded Failure. within his helmet, Sengshun could now see cracks across his screen. Red symbols covered the right side of his monitor, highlighting the multiple areas of damage in his assault arm. Uh-huh. The retina-activated mouse was frozen in place, and Senshin could find no way to access the interface to the weapon systems. Fuck it. Senshin unholstered his Walter PPK that was strapped to the thigh of his battle armor. Sension unloaded five shots at the closest enforcer, disintegrating most of the monster's cheek. But again, the shots had little effect in stopping the monster. In one leap, he grabbed Sension's arm threw him 20 feet in the air. He slammed down on the cold ground just outside the cave entrance. He tried to quickly get back on his feet, but he rose much slower as the power was almost completely drained in his suit. Senshin sprinted for the safety of the cave, but the second enforcer was too fast. It overtook him in seconds, grabbing him by the throat and pinning him against the mountain wall. The enforcer ah, oh, tightened his grip around Sention's ah, neck and strained to close his hand, crushing Sension's windpipe. System, oh, oh. Verlux. System. Verlux. Verlux. Verlux.
6: integrity, ah, ah,
3: ah. With Sension pinned against the wall, his paraglider luffed aimlessly beside him. It twisted on the snow-covered ground and tangled up in itself. Suddenly, a strong gust from the west surged down the face of the mountain. The paraglider still connected to the back of Senshin's body armor caught the wind and raced across the ground, flying off the ledge. The thin Kevlar lines of the glider rapidly grew taut and ripped Senshin's body out of the hands of the Enforcer but the tangled glider lines also got caught around the heavy feet of the Enforcer as well. The two of them were now being pulled off the ledge by what was essentially a massive sail. The flailing Enforcer ripped several of the lines, causing the glider to deform, but there was still enough momentum to pull the two of them over the edge. The second enforcer saw the first getting pulled over the edge and leapt to save him, but he underestimated the force of the wind, and found himself getting pulled over the side as well. The three of them now tumbled over the side of Mount Shenglung, tangled, caught in a thick mess of Kevlar lines. The long fall began slowly and started to accelerate as gravity took hold, and Shen, Shen found himself hoping his suit would fall, making his death as quick and painless as possible, when suddenly... The glider lines just a few feet above Senshin's armor were caught on one of the large boulders that the enforcers had failed to throw over the side. Senshin now hung a few feet below the ledge, while the enforcers both hung about 40 feet below the ledge. They were each hanging by the same mess of thin Kevlar lines that while unbelievably strong given their narrow diameter were showing signs of failure. Oh my god,
1: I gotta get back on the ledge. It's just just being reached. reach. Fuck! Come on, Senshin, fucking reach! Ah, these lines won't last another 10.
3: The first enforcer pulled violently on the riser line, propelling himself upwards. It reached for Senshin's legs, but its fingertips just grazed Senshin's boots. As the enforcer fell back downwards, it grabbed the paraglider lines next to it, thus stressing the failing lines further. No, no! And then for a moment, both enforcers stood totally still. There was no more thrashing or pulling, no movement at all. They just hung lifeless in the tangled lines of Senshin's paragliders. Fuck, what? The enforcers suddenly exploded in fury. They began pulling and thrashing at the lines.
1: Are they fucking crazy? They're gonna snap the lines. They're gonna kill all of us.
3: And then it struck him. Oh my god,
1: these enforcers, they're, they're expendable. Who's ever controlling them doesn't care if they live or die. Just make another batch of them disposable soldiers. I'll sacrifice a few pawns to get me, the king. I see it now. Fuck gotta move. I've gotta... But it was too
3: late. There were only a few Kevlar lines left. Senshin desperately tried pulling himself up by the riser lines, but it was clear he had waited too long. Only a few feet more, and he would have made it. But now, there was only one line left. One little thread to keep him alive so that... Senshin! Oh. Nathaniel! Nathaniel had seen Sentium battling with the Enforcers and activated the manual disconnect from his paraglider. He fell over 30 feet down, but managed to land on his feet, allowing his Vigil Assault armor to absorb the hard landing. As Senshin's last riser line snapped, Nathaniel leapt for the edge of the cliff and grabbed Senshin's wrist as he started to fall. The two Enforcers were still tangled in the lines as they fell, but the velocity of their freefall partially inflated the paraglider again. It was lopsided and flew erratically. But Senshin could see the glider twisting in the wind, heading south, carrying the two enforcers, tangled and dangling far away from Mount Sheng
1: Nathaniel. Oh my god, Nathaniel.
3: I've got you, Senshin. It's okay. I'm gonna pull you up. Grab the ledge as soon as you can. Normally, Nathaniel could never have supported the weight of Senshin, let alone the hundreds of pounds that the assault armor weighed. But his own suit of armor gave Nathaniel greatly enhanced strength and a vice-like grip on Senshin's Shen wrist. <coughs>
1: Uh, th- thank you, Nathaniel. Thank you. I really thought that that I was going to... no
4: longer be immortal? I guess it was a good thing that you brought me along, Sension.
1: Yes, I can clearly say that was one of my better decisions. <laughs> Your decision? <laughs> yeah, well, you saved me, Nathaniel. You saved my life. I seem to recall the certain trip to New York where you saved my own immortal ass not once but twice. I'm quite happy to call it even. Thank you, Nathaniel.
4: You're welcome, Sension. Are you sure you're all right?
1: Yes. Yes, I'm fine. It's just that, I don't know... I don't think I've ever been that close to to the end. I really thought that was it, Nathaniel. Going over that ledge, it all went so wrong so quickly. The odd part is I just realized I haven't even considered my own demise in centuries. I just assumed I would somehow live forever. Amazing how quick one can get used to the concept. I guess it's also amazing how deluded you can make yourself.
4: Like I said earlier, we're a team now. And as long as I'm here, I promise to make sure that you maintain your immortality for as long as you can... (laughs)
3: Exploding out of the cave was a third Enforcer. Oh, Nathaniel! Yeah. The Enforcer paid no mind to Sension, wanting instead to finish the slaughter he started. Nathaniel's body lay in a heap outside the entrance of the cave. Sension struggled to get to his feet, but the Enforcer was already on top of Nathaniel. Blow after blow landed on Nathaniel's body, and Sension could hear the sound of metal being destroyed. Ascension sprinted as fast as he could to rescue Nathaniel, but it was too late. As he ran over, he saw the Enforcer holding Nathaniel against the wall and gripping the boy's forearms. With one swift tug, he tore Nathaniel's arm off his body, like it was ripping off a band-aid. No. No! Nathaniel's body went slack in the mammoth hands of the Enforcer, who then turned to casually toss the young boy's body over the side of the sheer cliff. Senshin watched his body sail over the lip of the precipice like a flaccid rag doll, and then disappear into the mist thousands of feet below.
1: No, no, he was just a boy. He...
3: Senshin felt like his stomach had been suddenly ripped from his body, and the icy Himalayan winds could blow right through him. Another death, he thought.
1: Another death. Another victim. Another fucking sacrifice.
3: But his sorrow was short-lived. The murderous enforcer stood up and slowly turned to stare directly at Senshin. Fuck, I
1: can't access the cannon. I've got no offensive capabilities. Think smart, Senshin. You can't win this fight. So if I want to live, I have to...
3: Run. With the Enforcer blocking the only path off the high cliff, Senshin raced into the cave to stay ahead of the Enforcer. The monster gave immediate chase as soon as it saw him making a run for it. A normal human being would never have lasted long in a foot race with an Enforcer, but his vigil assault armor kept Senshin just a few crucial steps in front of his pursuer. Move! move, move. Senshin blazed as fast as he could down the center chamber, feeling the Enforcer's blows missing him by inches as he was showered in rock and bits from the ceiling that collapsed around him. The cave ceiling was lined with metal beams and traces of rail tracks along its dusty floor. Looks like someone
1: has been in this cave before. A long time ago from the looks of it. Was
3: it? His legs pumped like engine pistons, assisted by both the armor and his own immortal physiology. But Sension could see that his time was running out. One of the few displays that still operated on his helmet's computer visor was the suit's battery level. Last bar of power was now blinking in red. Damn
1: it! Getting harder to run. Suit's taking too much damage. Fuck! I need an escape. Come on! Ugh. Where the hell is
3: Black Door hiding? Senshin kept sprinting down the corridor, but as his suit got heavier, he could feel the Enforcer closing in on him. Just then, Sentient spied a high landing at the far end of the corridor. It was a ledge above a circular room recessed deep in the mountain. There. The ledge was high, and Sentient couldn't see what lay below him. But it didn't matter. The Enforcer was furious and only a few feet behind him. With one last burst of energy, Senshin ran up the ledge and leapt with all his might.
1: Whatever's down there has got to be better than what's chasing me. But
3: as he soared through the air above the circular chamber, he instantly realized that he was wrong. Dead wrong. Based on his limited experience, Senshin had only observed two facial expressions that the Enforcers were capable of producing, either slack-jawed mindlessness or pure and fettered rage. So it came as an unwelcome surprise that as Senshin sailed through the air, he now witnessed a third expression upon the face of the fourth Enforcer that stood in the middle of the circular room below him, holding three zip lines that led into a dark square hole in the floor of the room. Utter shock was the only expression that registered on the Enforcer's face. It was still gripping the three zip lines, therefore it was unable to block Sension's boot coming clean against his massive jaw, (coughs) the red behemoth moved little putting Senshin off balance in the air and crashing into the floor of the Circular Temple. He had just enough time to look up and be utterly terrified by what he saw. Goddess. The Enforcer that was chasing him above leapt off the high landing and was now soaring in the air above the Circular Temple, brandishing one of the thick ceiling beams from the cave. It held it high above his head like a war hammer and was about to obliterate Senshin. No, no, move! The beam missed Senshin by only a few feet, but some of the broken pieces of the girder smashed into his helmet, taking out the last of his visor's visibility. Shit. Senshin scrambled to his feet to watch the enforcer pick up the metal beam which had broken in half. He quickly scrambled to disconnect his now useless helmet and flung it at the closest enforcer, who used what remained of the metal beams to swat it away. Out of the corner of his eye, Senshin could see the other enforcer quickly tying off the ropes he had been clutching in order to join the fray. Fuck,
1: my armor shot. No weapons. Damn it. One of these Enforcers is deadly enough. They both join in. I'm fucking fished. Move quick, Senshin.
3: The Enforcer swung the beam fast at Senshin's head. He ducked, figuring the swing would leave the Enforcer off balance. But it was set up for a kick that sent Senshin sprawling across the temple floor. Suddenly, everything in Senshin's world went dark. There was no air left in Senshin's lungs, and he knew several ribs were broken. His vision was blurred, but he could still make out the Enforcers. Two giant red demons running towards him. The room was perfectly circular, and each Enforcer was approaching. From an opposite direction. They're
1: closing in on me. Nowhere to run. This is it. Rebellion is here.
3: Damn you, Black Dwarf. Senshin knew the enforcers would be expecting him to leap high, so instead, uh-huh. Senshin sprinted for 10 steps and then dropped to the ground, sliding on the rough floor of the temple. The enforcers weren't expecting this, so Senshin was able to slide under their clutches and make it past the first one moving clockwise. Uh-huh. He sprang back to his feet and, with his last bit of strength, ran toward the dark hole in the center of the temple floor. And for the second time, uh-huh. Leapt into the darkness with no knowledge at all of what lied below. McAllen entered Leviathan Cathedral and headed towards the Emerald Courtyard in the far rear of the building. It was a beautiful day, but to Macallan, each of the last several days had been beautiful. The sky continued to blaze proudly above her, producing colors she never thought possible, and each meal she enjoyed seemed better than the last. Seafood she had never heard of was produced in copious amounts, and all of the evening meals were accompanied by a honeyed sparkling wine that carried heavy notes of cinnamon, nutmeg and apricot. It was called venocious, and was quite the staple at Leviathan meals. Instead of making her feel sleepy as wine or beer often did, McAllen felt distinctly flushed as well as giddy and susceptible to easy laughter, but most of all, it was the incredible company that she was privileged to keep that made each day so wondrous. McAllen had met over a hundred people in the last few days, including a French field nurse from World War I, a 14th century Greek cartographer who pontificated how to best map out the vastness of space three-dimensionally, and a female aviator wearing a weathered leather jacket that refused to tell McAllen her name, but did offer her a stick of beechnut gum. Evangeline had clearly collected the most interesting people she had met during her last thousand years of existence, and McAllen reveled in meeting each one of them.
0: I guess if you live for a millennia, you get to meet some pretty cool folks.
3: The only aspect of days past that did not seem beautiful to McAllen was the absence of one particular person's company, Evangeline's. Yes, she had invited McAllen to a dinner party at the house of a young Incan prince who decorated his dining room with exquisite gold figurines and maintained an unnervingly keen eye on McAllen. But she was disappointed at her seating assignment, which placed Evangeline at the head, leaving McAllen several seats away, sandwiched between one of Genghis Khan's political advisors and a woman who claimed to be one of the original American settlers on Roanoke Island. All of it left McAllen feeling somewhat neglected by someone who was supposed to be her twin sister of sorts, It made McAllen feel odd, like she was somehow keeping a secret from herself. All of this just made McAllen that much more grateful to receive an invitation to join Evangeline in one of the smaller courtyards of Leviathan Cathedral. After walking through several long corridors within the vast church that towered over the south end of the city, she pushed on a large wooden door that opened slowly to reveal a stunning moss garden inside the courtyard. Two flagpoles stood opposite each other, displaying the tricolor flag of Leviathan, depicting two sea dragons holding the crest of a starstone. The sky above seemed to pulse rhythmically, making McAllen imagine that Lorelei must have been listening to one of her post punk albums from the 80s. The deep green moss completely carpeted every inch of the ground, including most of the heavy stone walls of the courtyard. A small gravel path lined with cherry blossoms led further into the interior of the courtyard, where McAllen and could see a narrow winding brook that coalesced into a small reflecting pond. In the middle of the pond was an island with a white granite bench. Upon the bench sat Evangeline, pensively staring at the small ripples in the clear water.
0: Uh I can see why you call it the Emerald Courtyard. <laughs> you could say that nomenclature has never been my strong suit. My god, it's it's so beautiful back here. This courtyard, it's Totally hidden from Leviathan City. I wouldn't have even known this place existed from the outside. Yes,
6: well, it's a welcome bit of privacy I afford myself. I enjoy coming here to be alone with my thoughts, listening to the delicate sound of running water. So soothing. It's been difficult lately with so much going on. What's going on? McCallan. Have you and your friend Tully been enjoying your time at Leviathan? Oh, sure. I mean, come on. What's not to enjoy? I hope very little. Why do you think that is? What is it that makes Leviathan so special? Why do you think that is? Well, I tend to think that Leviathan's strength comes from its citizens. The way that different people from different times can come together not just to tolerate, but to cultivate. I think it's one of the reasons why nobody wants anything from you here. You've...
0: You've created such an astounding space here in Leviathan, Evangeline. No one has ever done anything like this before in human history. I mean, everybody
6: I met has been the leader of their field or done something incredibly impressive like- Some might argue that my judgment on whom to convey immortality has been rather less than perfect. What are you talking about? I don't know, but for the first time in centuries,
0: I feel frightened. Why? Please talk to me. I can understand whatever it is that's bothering you. We're... well, we share a lot, you know? Very true, McAllen.
6: It's Harlequin. It appears that he's set on extracting a bit of revenge on me for something I did a very long time ago.
3: Evangeline told McAllen the story of Harlequin being caught planting the deadly virus in the Leviathan AI mainframe that now threatened the lives and security of the entire city. He didn't do it.
6: I know he didn't do it. Sadly, he actually did.
0: No, no. Evangeline, come on. That doesn't make sense. Harlequin would never have done something like that. He's not capable of anything
6: like... I think you'd be amazed at what he is capable
0: of. I know he helped me. More than I asked him to. He helped deactivate the Starstone. He
6: used you. He accepted the job to assist you only because he knew you would ultimately lead him back here, where he could do the most damage. I-I just can't believe that.
3: Evangeline rose from the granite bench and walked a few feet away from McAllen to stare even deeper into the crystal pond before her. Tiny inch-long squids that each emitted a different vibrant color drifted lazily by Evangeline's feet. She fell silent for a moment. And when McAllen approached her, she could see that her face had grown wet and red from tears. I've tried to give men everything they wanted. Money,
6: riches, immortality. I've even brought them back from the dead. And yet, they still always leave me. Betray me. They leave, McAllen. They always leave. No matter what I do, no matter what I give, they always leave. Evangeline, please. That's... That's terrible. Quite heartbreaking, actually. Do you know why I called it the Eden
0: Initiative? Because you believed that man was capable of creating his own utopian society, their own Garden of Eden. You wanted each person you brought here to dig into the deepest part of their creative selves and reach their fullest potential as human beings. Well, yes,
6: that's true. But the concept of Eden is much deeper to me. It's about the search for redemption. Another chance to shed the weight of original sin that we all carry. A chance to learn from our mistakes. To begin again after we failed at first. Sadly, despite the thousand years I've walked the earth, I fear I've learned very little. I doubt that.
0: Last night, I spoke with a woman at dinner that talked about how you secretly mobilized a cure to the Black Plague in the late 1300s to slow the spread of the disease through Europe. I also found out it was Leviathan that sent the correct coordinates of the sinking Titanic to the Carpathia in 1911, thus shaving hours off the rescue time. And the day before that, I met an SAS officer who told me how you helped Polish and French intelligence agencies decipher the Enigma code in World War II. Or two.
6: Those were nothing exceptional. They were merely necessary actions. That-
0: Only necessitated by the sole entity that has the power to change the world. You and your people that live here, hidden under six miles of ocean, completely unappreciated by mankind. I know things haven't been perfect here. And maybe people like Harlequin or even Senshin broke the piece you worked so hard to achieve. But when I look at the good that Leviathan has done in the world, not only do I think that you've learned quite a lot,
6: but the rest of the world has got a lot to learn from you. <laughs> You're very kind, Macallan. Very kind. And I'm glad you like it here. I do hope you'll consider staying. Of course I would. I mean, I will. I was, um... I was sort of waiting for an invitation. McAllen, I'm surprised at you. No invitation is needed. You're one of us. You're immortal. Leviathan is your home now. At least for as long as it exists. What's that supposed to mean? McAllen, I fear something very sinister is hovering around Leviathan. Something that has waited a long time. You're scaring me, Evangeline. I don't mean to, McAllen. I really don't. But you need to know that if anything happens, to me, it will be up to you to lead them. They will rely on you. Who will? The citizens of Leviathan. You will be their leader. What? Me? What are you talking about? I'm not their leader! I can't- Callan. you are the only one that can replace me. Only you have my ability to unlock the Star Stones that come to us from Sorax. But I don't even know the first thing about running Leviathan City. I don't know how
0: to get one of the Star Stones from Sorax, Operational or... procedures are the simplest aspects
6: to learn. And there are many here who will assist you. They won't follow me. They will. Why? Because, ultimately, they need you. You see, Macallan, you haven't been immortal very long. It probably doesn't feel that much different save a few inches of height and some toned arms. But sooner or later, it will. It will feel different when you watch those around you die, when you watch your lover perish slowly to the ravages of old age, when all of your family leaves you and you find yourself bounding closest to the children because you know they'll be around the longest, when all of the worries that consume mortal man like money, marriage, profession, health and housing are no longer applicable to you, then you will feel different. Initially, you will be sad, but when that passes, you'll feel powerful and invulnerable. And before long, it will be the feeling of removed invincibility that will be your motivation to rise out of bed every morning, that is, until the weakness starts. Until you wake up one strange morning and feel every cell in your body ache when you can't remember what it was to feel godlike and you will give anything to return to the state of bliss that you enjoyed for the last century. And for the first time as long as you could remember, you actually experience fear. Then? Then you'll come to me, and together we'll enter the Starstone Chamber, a sealed-off, private area of Leviathan Cathedral, deep in its catacombs, an area I have secured away from the rest of Leviathan, and only I am privy to. The citizens must don special hoods during the ceremony, and swear their loyalty to the Eden Initiative. Then I lay a hand on the Starstone, and a hand on the Citizen, and allow myself to be a conduit for energy and health, and allow immortality to flow back into the veins of the afflicted. They need me, Macallan, and there could come a day, soon I fear, that they will need you. Why do the Citizens wear hoods? Mainly to maintain the secrecy of that area of the Cathedral. Also to block their minds from any unintended distractions. What are you talking about, distractions? Macallan... The Starstone is not the only secret that I've kept in that area of Leviathan Cathedral. If you are truly going to lead, I feel like you should know everything.
0: I get the feeling I don't want to know everything.
6: (laughs) You truly are wise beyond your mortal years, Macallan. But in order to lead Leviathan, you must be aware of everything that is being constructed here. Constructed? I regret that I have kept certain aspects of our mortal existence secret from the general population here in the Wyvern. i have had to hide something terrible and regrettable
3: evangeline stared at McAllen, waiting for her to respond mccallum waited for a moment and then nodded slowly tell me what is hidden here evangeline i promise that you can trust me <sighs> What did they tell about my origins? How did they tell
6: you that all of this our immortality came to be? Cedric told me the story of Sumner Talk.
0: He told me about the aliens that crashed here on Earth and how you saved them and brought them back to health. And
6: what did you say? I I was amazed. And yet you never asked the most important question. I don't understand. Why were the aliens on Earth? in the first place. What do you mean? Their ship crash-landed. I thought it wasn't... It's true that the aliens' vessel malfunctioned and forced an emergency landing. But McCallan, their presence on Earth, was no accident, nor was it their first... Wait, wait!
0: What are you trying to say? Why were the aliens
6: goddess what's going on i don't know i haven't heard that type of alarm in over 70 years what kind of alarm is that perimeter
3: alarm someone is trying to break out of leviathan what hurry we need to get to the war room immediately evangeline grabbed McAllen's hand and the two of them sprinted out of the emerald courtyard and entered one of the high-speed elevators in the cathedral I thought the war room was out above the city. Don't we need to go outside? There to- are faster ways to get there. When the elevator stopped, the two of them dashed to a transport pod contained within a clear lucite tube that spanned high above Leviathan City, running close to the top of the Great Cavern. The pod contained two seats side by side, and McCallan felt a burst of energy thrusting them through the tube as soon as she was seated. As the pod sped across the sky of Leviathan, the clear tube gave an impressive view of the city, and McCallan couldn't help herself from becoming lost in the grandeur of Leviathan. Tiny aspects like a misty waterfall spouting forth from the cavern rock, and a pristine playing field with dark red and blue grasses tucked between two canals all revealed themselves to McCallan at this height. But despite the beauty and the architecture, even Even from this distance, McAllen could see people urgently moving between buildings, clearly reacting to the alarm sounding throughout the city. I
0: hope whatever's happening doesn't hurt this place, this beautiful city. I want this to be my home.
3: The transport pod veered away from the ceiling and descended down towards the terraced glass structures that clung to the mid and upper parts of the cavern wall. Long panes of jade glass stretched out along the cavern length, and McAllen could see the pool tube she was riding terminate at one of the largest of these structures. Before the pod had reached a full stop, Evangeline leapt out and walked briskly towards a set of black double doors. McAllen hurried to follow closely behind. A guard opened the door for them and quickly handed Evangeline in a tablet computer, blinking urgently.
4: lady, I have Bennu on coded channel 6. I've
3: got it. Bennu, report! Benu appeared on the screen without his trademark white hood. McCallum recoiled when she saw how truly hideous his face actually looked. More like a primitive animal than a man, she thought. But more than deformed, Benu's eyes were filled with tears and what was left of his nose looked completely dislodged from his face. Blood dripped from his nose and mouth and she could see bruises across his face along with lacerations on his neck.
2: Harlequin assaulted me and has escaped into the city.
3: Bennu, you've been hurt. You have
2: I must do nothing. We have to catch Harlequin immediately. Eve, you must act quickly.
6: Not your face, Bennu. My
2: face isn't important now. Harlequin has the key to the virus. If he escapes, our entire computer system will crash and Leviathan will be flooded. We must apprehend him at all costs, Evangeline. At all costs. Goddess. Send every single guard division to the West Bay. That's where he'll be making
6: we can't do that. What about the area of the cathedral? There? I said
2: all guard divisions, everyone, Evangeline. If Harlequin escapes, we'll never deactivate the computer virus, and we'll soon have far bigger problems than a lapse in babysitting. We need every single security personnel turning this city upside down and blocking any possible escape route.
6: But Bennu, the West Bay, that's that's all the way on the other side of Leviathan. Why would Harlequin travel so far Because to...
2: that's exactly what you'd expect him not to do. He's trying to do the unexpected. We must send every guard division that we have to apprehend him. All guard divisions, including reserves, get them all over to the West Bay immediately. I'll coordinate the operation, but you need to authorize the unit.
6: I... I think... Eve,
2: act now or we'll all die. You have to save us.
6: Very well, Bennu. All guard units, this is Evangeline. The fugitive Harlequin has escaped and is at large on the fire. He must be apprehended at all costs. I'm transferring all military command to Vice-Roy We'll be coordinating the land. This situation takes full priority of operations. Priority Delta six.
3: Evangeline placed the tablet back on the long mahogany desk of the war room and everything became still for a moment.
6: Come on, Macallan. Where? Where are you going? To the West Bay of Leviathan. I want to be there when they catch him.
3: End of part one.
4: This is Jack Ward, and from every one of us here at the Mutual Audio Network, we wish you, your family, and all your friends safe harbor during these
0: difficult times. Please follow the scientific and medical experts' advice, and we'll always be here for you daily at Mutual.